back to World War Now, everybody. I am your host, Conrad Franz, joined, as always, by Dimitri Kalyagin. We have a fantastic show for you this week, just after our previous episode with Jim Jatchis. Be sure to check that one out. And there has been an insane amount of news breaking. Attacks on the Kerch Bridge, grain deals destroyed, Strelkov arrested. And we're going to bring it all to you right here today on World War Now. Dimitri, how are you doing this morning? Doing great, Conrad. It's uh, it's it's been a crazy week. I'll tell you, it's been almost like a month compressed into one week. Just news all over the place: domestic, foreign, geopolitics, tensions. You know, we've it's almost like we've been to the brink of the world war. T- technically speaking, when the whole you know Zaporozhye nuclear power plant disaster went forward, after that they escalated, it would sort of calm down, and then the grain deal occurred, and of course terrorist acts. We'll be speaking all about that and. You know, naturally speaking, what's happening in Russia right now on the ground in terms of uh, legislative action against certain figures and just a, a lot of tension domestically as well as internationally. So we'll discuss it all tonight. Very, uh, very um, intense. Yeah. And again, this is all really tying into we think that things are probably going to we don't want to say escalate in a specific way, but I think we're kind of in crunch time as far as some decisions go on where this is going to happen up until September as things start to cool down from the summer and the Ukrainian counteroffensive is fully realized as an absolute failure. I think that we're going to see the Russians' real plan. Jim discussed this last week, how he thinks that there is thankfully still a good chance that Russia decides to impose what needs to be imposed on the ground to get this thing going. But I think that leads us right into what we have to talk about first, which is the Kerch Bridge terrorist attack. This is the second time the Kerch Bridge has been assaulted. All evidence of this attack points to it being having been perpetrated by a submersible uh, missile kind of bomb system that I believe is provided by the Brits. So it's not surprising that the most kind of silly, egregious, fundamentally just kind of anti-Russian, not even super military geostrategic, but just these symbolic anti-Russian actions are very much assisted by the Brits. I don't think it's any coincidence that, you know, we talk about this on the show a lot, the thalassocracy, the the sea empire of the, of the Anglo-Americans, of the Brits, always pushing up against the German and Russian land-based empires. And of course, Crimea and Sevastopol, that is, that being secured for Russia gives them their major, you know, blue water, deep ocean port where they can actually build up a huge open water navy to counter the navies of the West. And for the British, even if they aren't the major superpower, that just can't be happened. That's an important integral part of their historic foreign policy going back hundreds and hundreds of years at this point. And of course, we know that the the attack wasn't really that successful. Only half of the driving road part of the bridge has been damaged. The other side of the road is operational. The railroad section is completely operational. And of course, after this happened, Putin, through Peskov, of course, they vowed a very, very strong response. And then within a few hours, they were pounding Odessa. But we know that that, pro- that wasn't the response, because even though it was a dramatic escalation on the level of strikes we'd been seeing, that had already been planned, because also what happened was the grain deal ended. So, Dimitri, I'm wondering what you think of the response in the overall scheme of things in the next few weeks to that attack is going to be, and how it does play into you know, the securing of the Black Sea coast in general now that the grain deal is over? Well, I think security caution is definitely being raised in Russia, especially this is considering this is the second terrorist attack in almost, you can say, one year on the Kerch Bridge. So definitely it's a symbolic target because it is the largest, you could say the largest piece of construction or of architecture that's been constructed on the new lands and so-called annexed by Russia, which the Ukraine is claiming uh, occupied. So it is the it is almost like the um, the Statue of Liberty for Novorossiya. It is the 
you know, the largest project that the Russians have constructed on this new territory. So it is, in a, in a way, the symbol that they want to take down, whether it is through planting a bomb on an unsuspecting Azerbaijani um, uh, truck driver, or it's using some British high-technology underwater submarine drones, like we've mentioned, because at this point, it's suspected that it was probably a submersible drone, not a flying one, because it wasn't really noticed. It hasn't been caught on any CCTV footage, or, you know, the Russians are looking out for flying drones all over the place, but one traveling by water... Um, sounds quite uh, futuristic and unexpected. Again, horrible because uh, several civilians have passed away. And what's interesting is the the daughter of the couple that was murdered. Um, she's of course recovering in a hospital at the moment. I don't even think she's she's been told yet that her parents have died from the explosion. But her grandparents are visiting her. And do you recall um, the boy Fyodor from Bryansk? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the boy Fyodor actually wrote her a letter and sent her like a short video saying that look, um, me and you were both sort of We've both been targeted by these anti-Russian forces and, you know, we should be friends. And in, in a way, it's kind of cool. These two, like, nine, ten-year-old kids, both affected tragically by by the by the uh, sort of the outcome of the Ukrainian, I guess, uh, the way they're addressing the SMO for terrorism. And, you know, it's kind of it's kind of good to see the innocence of the children being protected and them kind of supporting one another in, in the face of this tragedy. Of course... Uh, it is an act of terrorism. And the way Russia responded, essentially, what we're seeing is a bombardment of Odessa following the grain deal stoppage. Now, there's another angle to this, wherein, in a way, you could see um, the, the, way, the fact that the grain deal wasn't extended due to Turkish, essentially Turkish, the aggressive Turkish stance uh, in NATO towards, you know, accepting Sweden, giving all these concessions to the Western powers. Erdogan, in a way, really showing his hand. His anti-Russian policies are very clear at this point. His position it's almost as if, and I've heard this from uh, Levan Pereveli, one of the main Georgian pro-Russian politicians, but he said Western people in general, and by Western he means, um, actually not Western, sorry, Eastern people, so the Middle Middle Easterners, they really respect power and they respect uh, people you know, who sh keep a very strong masculine frame. And I don't, I don't want to get too Andrew Tate-ish in this, but if we consider the fact that Putin and Prigozhin came to this peace deal after Prigozhin openly slapped the entire Russian MOD around and in fact, in a, in a way, disrespected Putin himself, right? Not listening to Putin's speech, continuing to march on Moscow until Lukashenko stopped him. Erdogan watching this happen openly kind of saw Putin as a weakened figure. And in fact, this is why he went for the Vilnius deal. Again, this is just an opinion of uh, more sort of experts on Turkey and in those regards. But nevertheless, Erdogan does seem to have reeled his hand. And what's interesting is the Ukrainian perspective, right? Ukraine striking the Kerch Bridge the, literally 20, almost 24 hours after the grain deal was officially ended and stopped almost puts puts a nail in the coffin, right? It's it's almost like Russia cannot restart the grain deal now because, well, hey, it'll look, it'll look weak considering that the grain deal benefits Ukraine and the Ukrainians are openly committing, again, uh, terrorist atrocities against the Russians. So it's almost like Ukraine, in a way, kind of stabbed Turkey in the back as well. Maybe it's Turkey wanted the grain deal to continue in some way, right? Think about it. For Turkey, it's a huge benefit, the tariffs they gain, etc. So Ukraine, in a way, really, I mean, it's just Zelensky uh, chimping out as he usually does, really kind of going his own, acting like an independent diva, like a Beyonce type character, where he's just like, I'm the boss. And, you know, his, his neighbors really, I think, are getting fed up with him. I think that's the trend we're seeing. But Russian, the Russian reaction is ongoing. The bombardment of Odessa, um, they're not very heavily hitting the ports. The ports, are, there's a lot of steel, there's a lot of construction there, there's a lot of concrete. Uh, these ports are going to take a while. And I don't even think the Russians want to destroy the uh, infrastructure there built in Odessa because, once again, how are you going to rebuild it? You're going to use Russian, the Russian 
federal budget in the future to reconstruct it like Mariupol. If you recall, Mariupol was bombarded very heavily for, and that factory uh, still remains standing to this day, of course, in a uh, quite a destroyed state, but these sort of steel slash concrete buildings from the Soviet period, they, they can withstand very heavy bombardment. So Odessa is in nowhere near falling state, but it has been affected. You know, some suburbs have lost electricity for several hours, etc. But um, nevertheless, that's kind of the response at this point is just heavy bombardment of uh, Ukrainian towns and cities, just as, you know, of course, they're not targeting, you know, civilian populations. They're targeting key energy sites as well as military outposts around the cities. But that's been the Russian reaction. Yeah, and as far as the port goes, as far as I can tell, the Ukrainians pulled most of their viable ships down to their even more southern ports, down even into Romania, and they're just trying. They were trying to secure some kind of guarantee from the U.S. or Turkey to protect their ships in the Black Sea, and they were like, "No, we're not going to do that. We're not going to face hot Russian artillery in the Black Sea right now, just because of this grain deal where ninety-seven percent of the grain ends up going to the West." And that's the thing, like, for on so many levels, and again. The Russians with attitude guys were talking about this, and I even want to kind of expand on it. Putin really is frustratingly obsessed with this legal jargon and kind of abiding by these letter of these internet. Look, it's international law. It's not even your own. Like it's 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 already its own frontier. Like international law is kind of a meme in and of itself. It's not the same as abiding by your own constitution and Supreme Court edicts inside you know a tangible sovereign nation. But regardless, Putin still is like he. It seems like before he could end this grain deal, he had to let it expire fully reassure all of his African allies and partners that he's still going to get them grain, even though they weren't getting the grain to begin with. And then, and now, I mean, and then you listen to what Strelkov had said, it's pretty obvious that the Ukrainians had just been using the grain deal to get all sorts of stuff brought in for the special military operation. And now that it's over, oh, now you get to take advantage of the extremely long supply line from Poland all the way to the front line. Wouldn't it have been great to have that be the only you know, supply chain from the very beginning. And it just kind of goes to show you how some of the, again, Putin, he's a lawyer. He's not, you know, we're going to talk about Stolkov in a bit. He's not someone that, you know, charged headlong into the Donbass to establish a new civilization. You know, these are, it's kind of a bit of a different perspective on how he's been handling just the diplomacy of all of this. But it's not all going to, we're not all just going to be hating on Putin this episode. He had some pretty, I thought, pretty epic comments about, about Poland and everything. But as far as Odessa being struck, we saw that video. You probably saw it, Dimitri. It's, I don't want to say it was funny, but it was the people recording. And Odessa is a place where like, you, you really, you really can't guess a lot more pro-Ukrainians these days, back in the day, it would have been a lot of pro-Russians and you know, there's Jews there as well. So kind of a three different kind of angles at how you're looking at the conflict. But that video of these people recording, the strikes were going on kind of in the distance, and he's recording, and he says, I never get any of these on camera. I always pull out the camera, and then suddenly the strikes stop. And then right across in, like, in some industrial area, right, I think they were close to the sea, so some industrial area, I think just right behind one of the ports, just gets completely smashed. And they're like, oh my gosh! And then I didn't understand Russian when I first saw the clip, but then I rewatched it, and they're saying finally i got something good on camera like i thought that they were like freaking out but they were just happy to have caught it on video so i think that clip really shows you how much it's increasing if these people who have been listening and listening and listening the whole smo finally had one happen just right in front of them i think that shows you the level with which they're increasing these strikes like i mean this is stuff like we haven't even seen since you know february 2022 that's kind of the level that this city is being bombarded which of course ties into the big claim, you know, we always are wondering on this show, will they push to Odessa? And with these strikes combined with the total control of the coast, like Russia now controls, 
the waters very, very steadily compared to what it used to in the entire northern Black Sea. Combined with that and apparently mass troops amassing in Belgorod to supposedly push on Kharkov, I think we are seeing, you know, especially with the cluster munitions and all these other things, I think we're finally seeing a hardened resolve that could lead to, again, what we thought would maybe happen a little bit earlier after the Ukrainian counteroffensive, we're finally going to see that push towards, you know, towards the actual, you know, towards the stuff we've been talking about, where all these governors have been talking about, all of these uh, figures have been saying what needs to be done. And if you, you can only ignore those calls so much while your opposition, mainly Zelensky, is still talking about retaking Crimea, right? I mean, you have to kind of match that energy. Well, you have to say, um, I mean, until... 2003 and four and on, until the uh the, the terrorist uh, Beslan school shooting you have to understand that during the 90s and early 2000s governors in russia held a very strong position in terms of being local politicians they had a lot of power they even collected their own they had their own like independent budgets they even had their own local uh regional oblast taxes which they uh had their own they had their own mini treasuries etc they were almost like local princes and then after the best terror attack putin essentially issued this massive reform of the governorships and now they kind of have to answer to the federal state level which we're not going to discuss, discuss if that's a pro or a con part of the russian system but definitely governors are more uh central centrally controlled now from moscow but nevertheless governors still play an important role we've seen the governors you know react to Prigozhin's uh movement through their oblast with Aronias, etc and again we see all these governors from bryansk um and then next door oblasts around Kharkov, and, and even those from the new territories such as Kherson and Zaporozhye openly call for military actions of various sorts that they're act actively participating in I suppose the geopolitical wartime opinions you know kind of not giving advice to generals but almost giving their opinion because you know we see this a lot on Twitter people saying well stop giving your opinions on these you know political issues and on wartime you guys aren't in the military you're not military experts so, well neither are these gov governors frankly you know, again, these people are lawyers, public servants, former tax agents, etc. Who knows, right? Various careers and fields have led them to this particular this particular seat in political power in Russia today. But now they are giving their opinion because hey, they have they have a stake in this. And I think all Russian and even all Orthodox people at this point have a particular stake in this conflict because the church is being persecuted and the world powers are using it as a form of, in a way, separating and you know, breaking the church apart, which we'll discuss towards the end of the episode today, exactly how these various schisms are, you know, uh, tied into this Gordian knot of the Ukrainian conflict. But um, you mentioned, again, Odessa, the the fact that the, you know, the strikes, the Western Ukrainians are finally seeing the, the fireworks for the first time and filming it. You know, TikTok combat continues. Again, this is a social media war as much as it is, as it is a war on the ground. It's a war of memes, fake news, ghosts of Kiev, TikTok clips from the Chechens and the Ukrainians alike. So everybody's sort of participating. And, uh, you know, now it's kind of, it's it's this new thing where everybody has to give their opinion. Everybody has to film a couple of clips. And, you know, if, if the invasion can be caught on camera, if you can see the Russian amphibian invasion, the ships arriving at the Odessa docks, you know, those clips could go viral. So uh, Ukrainians are getting their phones ready. And I'm, you know, I'm very glad. But you have to keep in mind, you mentioned Odessa as this, uh, you know, Odessa Jewish population, but you have to keep in mind, Odessa is not just Jewish, but historically it's been, yeah, it has a big Jewish diaspora community, especially those who who managed to escape the Pale Settlement during the Russian Empire, because the Pale Settlement actually ran just west of Odessa. And in fact, so a lot of wealthy Jews who managed to somehow escape from the Pale Settlement, they did in fact uh, settle 
no pun intended, in Odessa. And Odessa was known as this very coastal, like almost Italian, like a Genoa or a Venice, this uh, very trendy, uh, liberal um, coastal city. Very diverse as well. It was Tatars, middle, um, you know, people from the Mediterranean. Came, came, and a lot of Russians came there for holidays, frankly, because you just have the sea and the beach and, you know, just the usual Crimean-type climate. So Odessa was all, always this vibrant city, and even Pavel Gubarev and Strelkov actually used to go there as kids for holidays. So <laughs> it's just, uh, it's so if taking Odessa would be like a key, uh, sort of like the key to Ukraine, essentially. It is after Crimea, it was their main point of uh, contact to the Black Sea. Of course, Nikolaev also has a massive port, but Nikolaev is, compared to Odessa, it is, there's no comparison there. Odessa is the primary target, and if, if Russians are planning a new offensive towards the end of summer, autumn, before the onset of winter, or even maybe as winter sets, right? You could also consider the fact that uh, the loss of electricity, the loss, the, the loss of uh, heating in a lot of Ukrainian suburbs and cities could really set the population, which are being forcefully conscripted. We're seeing that too in the Western cities and the suburbs and uh, Ukrainian oblasts. It could really set the people against the Ukrainian government. So Russians could do, could either wait for the winter and then attack the, you know, these particular centers of power provision in Ukraine in order to really agitate the local population toward, against the war, calling for Zelensky to you know, strike a peace deal or to surrender, perhaps, to Russia. Or they could actually strike before winter comes. So I completely agree. There is something being prepared. And we also is going to give a shout out to Alex Jones, who appeared on Patrick Bet Davids only recently, even though this episode came out about three weeks ago, but only recently did I listen to it. And in fact, Alex Jones's opinion on on the war, he says that, according to his sources, the counteroffensive has more or less failed. So the tanks used have, the tanks utilized by Ukraine have, you know, they have amassed to somewhat, the losses have amassed to something between 100 and 150 lost mechanized units at this point. Armored tanks, we're talking lost. So almost half of what was given to Ukraine over the last 10 to 12 months. Which, I mean, it's, it's a lot. Mind you, the United States has thousands of Abrams standing in storage which they're just not providing Ukraine, you know, for various reasons. But so hundreds of tanks lost may seem like a lot, but you have to keep in mind the American military has literally thousands in, in, in depot, essentially standing in mainland United States and around the world in their various bases. So, and as far as like mm -hmm. the and as far as like the immediate proximity of Russia to tanks, this probably won't happen how they want it to. But Poland is attempting to spend fourteen percent of its GDP on just military hardware alone. That's not its defense budget. That's just the hardware subsection of its supposed defense budget. So unfortunately, it seems that there, uh, there's going to be a lot of tanks around the Russian world for a very long time. But before we get into some of the, you know, the stuff going on with Strelkov and some of that, I just wanted to make sure I mention, you mentioned the casualties from the Kerch Bridge. And when it comes to Crimea, Odessa and everything, there was also, I think, before this, like a few weeks ago, a casualty, a teenage girl killed by a Ukrainian drone in Sevastopol while she was, I think, on the phone with her mother. I mean, just like, again, like, that's part of why, like, the Crimea rhetoric is just so bizarre, because, like, I get saying it, and then, but when they try to do it, it's like, I mean, look, Crimea is, like, not only is it a place that is peaceful and has very historic, there's people there that are living pretty wealthy lives. I'm not saying, like, elites. I'm just saying, like, there's a lot of middle-class people here. There's a lot of people here that are, I mean, even in the midst of, like, a total bizarre geopolitical situation, have made a pretty good life, life for themselves. And a lot of them are, like, have become extremely patriotic in the midst of this. And Zelensky thinks that it's going to be, we're going to be able to reclaim these territories by just dro dropping drones on people and just killing civilians for no discernible military gain. Like, look, it's one thing. I'm sure there's people still in Kherson or still in Zaporozhye region 
that go both ways. The bombs are flying both ways. You know, I'm sure if you're someone on the ground, you're not politically minded. Who knows what's who knows how that opinion is really shifting? But I'm sure there are people on both sides. It's not really the same in Crimea. People's especially after the water got restored at the beginning of the SMO, these people have no interest in becoming part of Ukraine. And I think as you said, like the, the that little boy in Bryansk who wrote to the little girl, I'm sure that like him, I'm sure that little girl has a few million rubles at least in her future from, you know, the Russian state, which is more than appropriate. But I just think in general, the U.S. has to realize that much in the same way that Russia knows it's never going to get Galicia and has already rhetorically just kind of abandoned it, they really need to realize they're not getting Crimea, let al- I mean, the, the Donbass even, let alone Crimea. So I think the, this is part of why, even if Putin, Putin's autistic legalism, he realizes we need to start playing for keeps here. And like you said, like you have to get through Nikolai, you have to get to Odessa for you geographically challenged people. And I think, you know, Nikolai in Odessa in the south and then Kharkov and Dnipropetrovsk in the north is what's going to be on the menu next. So we're going to be keeping our eyes out for it. But uh, as far as territory, though, that's not even the most interesting territorial discussion that's been had. Putin made some pretty interesting comments about Poland, if you want to let us know what was said, Dmitry. Yeah, essentially, Putin gave us uh, another very powerful historical monologue on on the post-World War II split of Poland, Germany, as, exactly how these partitions were occurring after, you know, Stalin defeated uh, the Third Reich in World War II, essentially. Well, and the Soviet people, of course, participated uh, as per communist history. Stalin, of course, led the Russian people to victory, but Putin Putin mentions very clearly here, and he's obviously reading from a teleprompter in this speech, but whoever wrote the speech was very knowledgeable because the, and Putin reads it very well, and there's no ums or buts, he, he reads better than a, than a professional historical lecturer on these particular subjects, and it's very accurate, there's years, dates, and Putin straight up says that, of course, Poland was granted by Stalin's clemency, a piece of Germany after World War II, after, of course, the Third Reich was defeated. And he said that, look, uh, we're willing to renegotiate that. We're willing to, you know, as we are, the, you know, the, we are the inheritors of Russia, of RSFSR, of the USSR, where we can look at, you know, giving this piece back to Germany and we'll be, you know, reassessing this particular claim on behalf of Poland. So <laughs> Putin essentially, uh, you know, again, targeting openly challenging the polish you know the polish sovereign independent state today uh, claiming that look uh, all not all of their territories were annexed fairly some were actually given uh, with no pretext whatsoever simply by the whim of stalin and some of these other leaders that uh, these territories are not polish they're even less polish than say some western ukrainian parts are ukrainian or russian so you have to consider just when, when people say ukraine is not russia or some of these oblasts are not russian Russians also have these particular historical anecdotes they can present to some, of, especially some of these Eastern European countries like Poland and Putin. Clearly, like I, I think he targeted that at somebody. I cannot tell exactly who it was, but probably the the Polish president Duda. I mean, uh, he's kind of wiping the sweat off his face at the moment because not only if I mean fourteen percent of the GDP you mentioned that's that's incredible. That's more than Russia actually is committing to its military today. Um, you have to consider like build, 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 building a new military industrial complex and Putin, he doesn't, his only response to that is actually audibly kind of critiquing you, critiquing your national sovereignty and your national geographic, uh, geographic borders and kind of laughing at you, just saying that, yeah, we're going to partition Poland again. We're going to take a piece off you. Like, I mean, it's just openly calling Poland out at this point, which is pretty, it's pretty based. 
Yeah, I think I'm, I'm hoping that Vlad's also has some pretty big hardware acquirements secretly on the down low from North Korea, because I'd imagine that'd be relatively easy to keep on the down low if you're going to keep a military purchase on the down low. But as far, I, I just thought it was so funny in the midst of, I mean, because look, you know us here on this show, we're not, look, we're, 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 we're Z supporters, but we're not on here coming out talking about denazification every day. And I just think it's so funny that Uden, the, the denazification has been, with the exception maybe of the liberation and protection of Donbass civilians, denazification has basically been the number one kind of casus belli for the war. And I tweeted this, but Putin basically just says, yeah, Poland, while we're denazifying Ukraine, we're just going to give uh, part of your land back to Hitler too when he, decides, when, de when he decides to come to power in Germany and he wants it, which I think that just shows you for all the people that like, for all the right-wingers that just like hate Russia for the denazification stuff, it's it's just fundamentally not the same as the anti-racism, anti-fa stuff that you see in the West and how they use like Nazi as a slur just for, for white people. But I think, I just think it's so, I mean, I don't know what that means. The, I mean, it's just Putin will like not advance in Ukraine for like months and then imply that we're going to, he's going to fight Poland in a war. You know, it's kind of, I think these, I think Putin in many ways kind of assumes too much from some of the Western understandings of history, which is a, is a thing you can notice with foreign, you know, Eastern I, by that, I mean Asian and Russian Slavic diplomats always have, they, they feel they feel still that it's okay to talk to their citizens as if they're well-versed and well-read in the Western canon, which cannot say the same about politicians in the West. But I think he wouldn't be talking about that if he wasn't going to be pushing farther in Ukraine. And maybe, who knows? I mean, maybe he maybe he's saying this as well as the right rises in Germany. I mean, the AFD is more popular than it's ever been. They've won their first, you know, regional election to where one of their members is now the head of like a, a state in Germany. In the East is where they are by far the most popular. They're the number one party in Eastern Germany. And so Putin's, you know, playing a little bit of games. He's like, we'll give you guys some of that Polish land, but don't worry, Poland, we'll still give you, we'll, we'll, maybe we'll give you Galicia, maybe we'll give you Lvov and, you know, some of the areas around there. So, you know, the map autism continues to increase. I think we can appreciate um, that particular speech, but part of me even thinks, it, like, Medvedev was saying things a lot more radical than that and every single week thus far and eventually it just turns into it just turns into bland rhetoric and essentially we just take it as you know Medvedev is just spreading propaganda he's just talking he's talking smack and it has no weight behind it and because Putin's historical opinions are so rare you only get one every six months or so uh that way we pay more attention to it but part of me thinks what if he would release his opinions on certain territorial um you know territorial aspirations every you know every month or so you know, we'd get like a bi-weekly fortnightly update on you know what Putin's opinions are and how, <laughs> how the world should be partitioned on say the Himalayan crisis or Tibet or something like that I mean it'd be very interesting but oh it's it's either that or you know there's there's another part of me if, if i want to play bad cop that thinks perhaps uh putin's just being misinformed about what's actually happening on the ground because how relevant is this sort of rhetorical stance against against poland like what what exactly does this achieve does it somehow uh, involve the you know the, the counteroffensive ongoing now the carriage bridge explosion wagner etc like it doesn't there's no palpable effect here it's almost as if somebody said well it's we can talk a bit about poland now and kind of fill in this dead space but there's a lot more stuff to be spoken about. For example, the church persecution. Like, that could be a powerful rhetorical tool if I was to bring a utilitarian position and just say, well, Putin is an Orthodox Christian. So, in fact, it wouldn't even be a pragmatic utilitarian stance. It would be a very a very earnest and conscientious one. He could, frankly, speak about the church being persecuted for 10 straight minutes 
instead of Paul. And I'm just saying this as a as an opinion, but somebody could rip draft the speech for him on the teleprompter instead of say speaking about Poland, and perhaps that would have more of an effect on what's happening on the ground, and maybe that would inspire the Russian people. Uh, you know, those fighting on the front lines in Zaporozhye who are watching some of the nonsense back home as well as on the front line in Ukraine, they can perhaps be inspired by that. You know, this is what we're fighting for. We're not fighting for some some stuff Stalin did in 1946, but we're fighting for, um, you know, the Orthodox faith. That's what we're dying for. We're not dying for some memes. We're not dying for uh, some scenes out of the Siberian barber by Nikita Mikhalkov, or we're not dying for Chechen TikTok clips. Um, that's really important, I think. But... Um, nevertheless, or there also could be this disconnect. People are saying Putin doesn't have an iPhone. He doesn't have a smartphone of any sort. The information he receives is through these very short, brief, summarized, these succinct, old school uh, USSR style uh, booklets, which people provide him. And of course, his secretaries write up for him, essentially giving him the news of the day, the news of the week, etc. And all these statistics, which he consumes. But it's not like he's on Telegram browsing and reading some of these war journalists or speaking to them face to face or tweeting at them. You know, unlike Medvedev, Medvedev clearly has a smartphone and he's actively using it. But Putin, part of me thinks that he's actually completely disconnected from the internet almost. And uh, there's a chance that the stuff he says, it might just be based on the historical book he's read in the, in, in the day or the week and not even based in reality or what could be politically effective. But that's, again, that's based on. That's more about his advisors than it is about him. I'm not saying his comments were bad. It's just a very interesting observation as to uh, why now. And, you know, again, Putin's words have a lot of weight. Let's keep that in mind too. If Putin says the wrong thing, the entire world market will crash by 10%. If he mentions the word nuclear, bomb, tactical, uh, the nuclear power plant in Zaporozhye, if he makes a threat, uh, you know, the entire world will start shaking. And also... So you have to keep that in mind too. So Medvedev can actually bark all he wants on Telegram and he can post all kinds of bizarre stuff. But Putin does have this, uh, I guess, authority. Like he does have this, uh, I guess you could call it almost like an autocratic type aura. Like a lot a lot hinges on him, whether whether he wants to, wants it or not. So in fact, maybe it is part of the package that you do have to speak about sort of irrelevant historical subjects or, you know, taunt Poland in peculiar ways, which can be misinterpreted and they don't really have any applicability in reality, but that, that won't that won't shake up, say, diplomacy or, you know, multilateral relations. Well, and I just think it's important to realize that the Putin video statement, you know, at his desk or standing up, you know, clasped hands, that's that's when you can maybe start to speculate that it could be happening. Just speculating on whatever Medvedev or Peskov happened to say, you almost don't even have to pay that much attention anymore. But I think before we, uh, you talk about telling on Telegram and everything, and, you know, who knows what could have been if Putin just followed Strelkov on Telegram. I'm saying that somewhat tug-in-cheek, but before we talk about Strelkov, I just wanted to say, you talked about Putin possibly, you know, giving his, giving his dictates on where we should divide up the Eurasian continent and the world map along Tibet and these lands. I just I want to remind everybody, episode 12 of Ether Hour, if you want to hear more about that, we even discuss Putin's possible roots as a member of the Nomian race of Chud, and this, uh, this, this comes into... It's a very interesting show. I recommend everybody check it out, worldwarnow.substack.com. We'll have it linked below. But uh, speaking of Ether Hour, and we're going to talk about Strelkov and Gubarov now, we also have some episodes about them. So if you want to learn more about Strelkov and these characters, be sure to you know check out episode 12 and check out some of our old episodes where we really go into the background of some of these characters and their influence in the Donbass Wars and the beginning of this conflict that we now are so engrossed in today. But with all of that... 
the man himself, Strelkov, Igor Gierkin, has been arrested. And for me, it's just so crazy because I was on the phone with a friend of mine in Russia on Monday of this past week, and he says, oh, you know, there's all sorts of people on the right, you know, Strelkov, he's not going to, you know, nothing's going to happen to him because I said, you know, I'm worried about him. You know, he's been saying a lot of stuff. And then what happens this week? Arrested. And it's a bit unfortunate. If anything, it's a bit surprising considering there were times when he was filming himself yelling at the camera saying a lot more extreme stuff even than he said recently so dimitri tell us maybe exactly what happened what he got charged with and what you think this what do you think why did this happen now well essentially they're charging Strelkov for the primary charge though the first one they're charging him for a telegram message he sent on the 25th of may 2022 so this is during the siege of mariupol and Strelkov mentions uh two particular military divisions or brigades essentially i'm not going to get into specifics but he mentions two particular military units in the russian army who weren't getting paid either their salaries or they weren't getting some sort of bonuses and they sent in official complaints to Strelkov through his military channels, and he, of course, published the complaints online. And so, allegedly, that was considered fake news according to the Russian new criminal code laws, which, of course, include, uh, you know, misinformation against the special military operation. And, of course, that's what Strelkov was charged for. And also, apparently, it was a, again, it was a call to arms. So him in to, in May 2022, which had no, again, no effects in reality. There was, there was no causation. There was no military uprising. There wasn't a Wagner uh, there wasn't a Wagner uprising of any sort or any military issues there, but Stilkov apparently did made this uh, call to arms, uh, you know, caused the violent uh, violent unrest. And some of the other charges, of course, uh, allude to Stilkov's participation in, in sort of hate speech and causing essentially inciting inciting um, inciting violence. So again, this is a uh, this is section 280 and 282 of the Russian Criminal Code. 282 in particular, which is why we even mentioned the term anti-Semitism, because 282 is the Russian uh, is essentially called the Russian the Russian article in the Criminal Code of of the Russian Federation because it targets specifically Russian people. Mostly, we're speaking about ethnically Russians for making anti-Semitic comments, uh, posting uh, you know posting about certain subjects online as well as publishing books or even saying things in public verbally, inciting discrimination, racism. It's it's essentially, the Russian constitution does speak about, does mention free speech, but it's not, it doesn't have that same First Amendment strength that America has. And so 282 essentially cuts down, when you speak about hate speech laws in the US and how destructive it would be, right? When the, you know, the Democrats, they really want to bring in hate speech, right? And people like Ben Shapiro, they line up against it and, you know, the whole Daily Wire, they, they, you know, they, all, they always speak out against hate speech, hate, hate speech laws. Russia actually does have hate speech laws. Strelkov is being essentially targeted for that, and perhaps even more because they've searched his apartment, right? And who knows what kind of books, digital material, you know, you know how these FSB agents and Envadeh agents actually take your hard drives, right? They're going to search for all of Strelkov's videos. And we, me and Conrad have clips of Strelkov saying some pretty um, red-pilled stuff. So if we have those clips... And we keep them for ourselves, for our personal knowledge and you know consumerist needs. Uh, who knows what they may find of him? What kind of audio recordings, video, video recordings? We know what Stelkov's opinions are. We know the, the opinions of these Donbass leaders. They're all very based. They know exactly what's going on in the world. They know who runs things. They know who runs the banks. They know the ethnicities of all these various Russian oligarchs like Deripaska, Friedman, etc. Um, Abramovich. They're all they're all tied in. They're all locked in. They know what's going on. So the question is. What additional charges will they bring? And if they don't bring any charges, perhaps Sirkov will be let let go quite, you know, 
we'll let go easy because again it's very interesting exactly what the feds and the local authorities will find in his apartment i think that's very dangerous for stilkov and again this is completely unfounded based on old media posts like are you serious is this cancel culture has cancel culture arrived to russia we speak about this a lot in the english twitter sphere how disgusting and awful it is but stilkov if anything has in fact kept the russian mod accountable and in fact russia is I mean, Putin speaks about how Russian is, Russia is a democracy, so aren't we supposed to speak about what's happening in, you know, in the, in the democracy, in society? And Russia is still run in, in large part by taxpayer dollars. So, again, uh, if it's a liberal democracy of sorts, there's supposed to be some sort of guarantees for, uh, I guess, public d discourse, especially on a big subject like the SMO, where, you know, hundreds and thousands of people are being conscripted and you know, handed out leaflets to actually attend service. And I'm not saying that's bad. That's just the reality. That's part of like the Roman citizen type system where you have to serve your state, but also the state gives you certain rights. And one of those rights is to speak out and give your opinion. It's different to what the Russian Empire had, but it's very similar to what the Soviet Union had. And in fact, Strelko, I think, expressed his rights very clearly on his Telegram channel, which is why he, why he had almost a million. He had more followers than... The Russian Ministry of Defense did on Telegram. Just consider that for a moment. And he's never held political office in Russia. He he was the Minister of Defense for a sick like less than six months of Donetsk. I think it was like two and a half months or something, right? In 2014. He's held no political office whatsoever. He's a self-made Orthodox Christian, um, I suppose, layman, you can say. Like and, and that's very impressive. And it's just important to recognize the the timing and all of this again if this was going to be claimed as he was inciting disdain behind our front lines he was trying to sow dis disdain between the leadership and the soldiers in the battle that that's one thing but then why would they have waited well over a year to have arrested him for this that that post is no longer even relevant to the situation on the front line and some of these things so it's it, that that raises the question right they're holding him now for basically 2 months of pre-trial detention until September 18th and so if you're going to think about this conspiratorially, I know some of the RWA guys, I was agreeing with them on this even before I listened to the episode, that this was probably just a local prosecutor deciding, you know what, we're going to take down this guy, he's pissing me off, you know, we're sick of this. But there's obviously the, the question that did this come from the top, did this come from the Kremlin, you know, and I know that a lot of people kind of overstate the federal, you know, the the presence and overarching control that the Kremlin itself and these officers have over the entirety of Russia. But I think if something, I mean, it could go both ways. Maybe there's going to be a big military push in the next two months, and they didn't want Strelkov sowing issues behind the front lines, you know, causing dissent among more nationalistically mined soldiers. Or, and this is the worst case scenario, there's some kind of treaty, some kind of terrible negotiations about to come around the corner, and they definitely didn't want him on Telegram talking about that. And again, like, I mean, I think you made this point a little bit earlier. It's a bit disheartening to see Prigozhin, you know, not only was he like, he, it's one thing if he was just allowed to go to Belarus, but we know that he's been flying back and forth between Minsk, Moscow, St. Petersburg, all during all this time, we know he met with Putin just a few days after the whole coup thing went down. So, you know, he's allowed to do that. Whereas, you know, someone like Strelkov now is finally getting arrested. But after he was arrested, we saw Pavel Gubarov and some of the other angry Patriot Club members you know, kind of protesting outside, demonstrating. Gubarov was briefly detained before being let go. And I think, again, for the record, me and Dmitry, we don't necessarily agree with, you know, everything. We're not just suddenly jumping on the black-pilled Strelkov train. We still think 
we still have our perspective about how this is going and the control of God and the course of civilization. And I still think a more white-pilled perspective on what, 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 what the Russians are actually going to be able to achieve. But there, you still can't look, put aside what Strelkov did. I mean, and he still is friends with these people like Kvachkovs, Gubarov, some of these other characters. So, you know, the, the real good, the good guys are still kind of together and still trying to make their voice heard and trying to perpetuate the true ideas of Russian Orthodox nationalism. And I wanted to bring up Gubarov as well, because he recently shouted out Peter Nemitz, who many of us know on Twitter, who recently translated Gubarov's kind of his writings and work about his time in the Donbass war. Nemitz also had already translated 85 Days in Slavyansk, which I have and have skimmed through a few times, which is about, you know, it's about the Donbass War. It has a lot of stuff about Strelkov and has a lot of interviews with people that were living through all of that civilians. So very thank you to Peter Nimitz for bringing a lot of that stuff to the English language. I know, you know, the drones and the, and the globalists won't ever read it, but for those of us that are curious, it's good to have that stuff in English. But I wanted to read this before, Dimitri, I want to kind of hear your take on what you think, why he could be being held till September 18th, and how that may even tie into some of the Belarus, Wagner, Utkin, Prigozhin stuff. But remember, listen back, think back to that first episodes of World War Now, think back to all, the, all of our Turkish coverage, think back to, you know, what we have said World War Three may look like. And this is why, this is part of why we feel so strongly about Strelkov and why we're trying to stand up for him right now. I just want to read this. Uh, this is from his telegram back in... Uh, July 17th, he said, the moment of truth is getting closer, or rather the time is getting closer when my oldest forecasts about the development of the situation in the Ukraine-Turkey-Syria connection will come true. For those who did not read and did not listen to me in 2015 and 2016, I remind point by point my theses, which have never changed since then and have not become, in my opinion, less likely. Sooner or later, the Russian Federation will have to enter into a direct military clash with Turkey on the initiative of the latter. The fighting will take place in Syria, in the Transcaucasus, and on the Black Sea. The direct participation of large contingents of Turkish troops, under the guise of volunteers, or even with, without such cover, in operations against our army in Ukraine and Crimea is not ruled out. The Turks will begin to move on to a direct open confrontation with the Russian Federation after they squeeze dry from the Kremlin's amazing people all the concessions that can be obtained peacefully. Then they will begin to put pressure on military force. The Turks will choose the moment of entry into the war, taking into account the maximum weakening of the military forces of the Russian Federation and the unpreparedness to repel Turkish aggression. The first stage will be the closure of the Bosphorus and Dardanelles for our fleet and supply ships delivering reinforcements to Syria. Erdogan may take this action to be implemented already this year. This will be followed by a series of armed provocations in Syria by the so-called armed opposition against our troops in order to expand the zone of control of the Turkish authorities. After waiting for the depletion of ammunition and supplies, he goes on to describe you know, some, some operations. He goes on to say the fate of our peacekeeping contingents in Karabakh and Armenia seems just as un unenviable, which will be crushed and at best interned by the Armenians or simply destroyed and captured by the Turkish-Azerbaijani coalition. And he just goes on to describe how this is all of these aggressions are going to be this is the course that this Ukraine Black Sea conflict, sure, it's this proxy war against the West, but the way that it gets expanded is through this kind of Turkish angle. And why does Strelkov believe this? Well, Strelkov, as we've said, he is the only person, the mainstream voice, really bringing the prophetic, orthodox, ascetic angle into all of this. He has spoken with the monks of Sviatogorsk Monastery. They've given him prophetic words about how how the course of human events may occur in the next few years. And of course, Strelkov has read the prophecies of St. Paisio. So of course, Strelkov will have familiarized himself with the words of the Greek elders on all of this. So 
Again, we may not agree with all of his analysis. He may be blinded by some personal vendettas and, you know, the the lack of objectivity that comes with being in Russia in this extremely hot political climate. But nonetheless, I think I can safely say that it's completely ridiculous that he's being arrested. And I think his voice is an important voice to have in all of this. No, absolutely. And, you know, there's a lot to say. And s some people mentioned that, well, what would Strelkov know that's top secret that the Russians are trying to hide? What if Strelkov was to leak some sort of... Like, what does Strelkov know that, say, Prigozhin doesn't? Or, well, the fact of the matter is Prigozhin knows so much more than Strelkov does in terms of he's an insider, right? Prigozhin probably knows exactly who did what line of coke on what yacht in what restaurant in St. Petersburg. He's probably seen Putin drunk in person. He's probably actually seen criminal... Like, there's, there's, a, there's a funny case. A, a couple is still trying to sue Prigozhin for killing their um, young uh, young son who was participating. He was like um, a waiter at one of Prigozhin's uh, um, yachts, essentially. And allegedly during the during the voyage outside of Petersburg, he fell overboard and died. The, some of the witnesses are at the actual um, at the actual event say that Prigozhin hit the man over the head and threw him overboard himself. So like this is wild stuff happening in Petersburg back in the day. Prigozhin's a complete gangster, but nevertheless, there are these crazy stories. But Prigozhin, nevertheless, as you said, he's he's let loose. He's probably seen a lot of stuff. He we've seen his house, we've seen the drugs, we've seen the money, the machine guns. This guy knows things about the Kremlin, the Petersburg elite which Strelkov would have no access to, mind you. The only thing Strelkov would know would be the anti-air, the anti-air situation. Who shot down the MH17? Because it wasn't Strelkov, right? Let's consider that the fact that 17th of July, of course, uh, was the anniversary, the nine-year anniversary of the shooting down of that airplane, which, again, started the... Um, I mean, it was a tragedy, but the question arose, like, who shot it down? Was it the Donbass rebels? And Strelkov is wanted by The Hague and the International Criminal Court, right, for this exact alleged crime. He's a war criminal for shooting down this plane, allegedly. But Strelkov, he openly denied it. He said, I've never shot this plane down. But he's never said who shot it down. He never accused the Ukrainians or the Russians. There's only... Uh, whoever had this anti-air anti defense system, it was either the Russians who shot it down or it was the Ukrainians. I'm leaning towards the Ukrainians, but part of me feels that there's a chance Strelkov thinks or has information that it might it may have been a Russian border anti-air anti-air missile that took the plane out. That's just my, that's not just my opinion, but it would explain why Stilkov has been very silent on the issue, and it really hasn't even defended himself when the Hague accusations came in, because he actually knows who shot it down, and in fact, he doesn't want to accuse his own country, right? Doesn't want to implicate anybody. He's just going to keep silent on it. And in fact, Stilkov, what other information would he know that's valuable to the international community? You can say the, the Hague well, what would Stilkov know that's really top secret? Because he has no access to the Kremlin. Well, he would know exactly how 2014 started, how who organized uh, the entire the Crimean referendums, who organized the entire Donbass rebellion. He was there at the head, so he would know exactly who funded it, which minister of defense, which deputy, which director from the Kremlin. He would have direct information about that. And it just seems bizarre to me that they would silence him or try to imprison him for certain uh, weird pretexts, right? As we said, this this... These particular actions he's done had no real effect in reality. And again, worst case scenario, right? I mean, I'm hoping that Russians about to shoot a right. And in fact, it is simply some sort of administrative oversight. And the chief prosecutor of that particular region simply got a bit too uh, egregious. Or perhaps he just simply stamped this particular case to go ahead, right? Or it could be a call from the top. There could be, again, two scenarios. Russia could either be preparing an offensive which is very likely considering the troop formations we're seeing around the borders and the heavy bombardment of Odessa. Or there could be, again, a peace treaty being prepared and Strelkov, I mean, worst case scenario, 
could physically be handed over to The Hague as a war criminal. And so, so similar to what Serbia has done, again, it seems seems crazy, and I am playing bad cop in a way here, but Serbia, remember, Serbia gave up some of its generals as well after the Yugoslav mm -hmm. wars to NATO. And well, let's not forget that, and Serbia is a 99% Orthodox country. And so eventually, if a country is brought down to its knees to a certain point, they will give up its own heroes. I mean, it's humiliating, embarrassing, and it's it's a sin to betray your own. But there's a chance that those in the Kremlin, not Putin, not saying it's Putin, but it could be there's certain, especially Shoigu, Strelkovich, you know, he's clapped at Shoigu many, many times. There could be people who would say, look, Putin, I'm happy to have this peace deal happen. Just show this Strelko guy, he really triggers me. I hate him. And Prigozhin hates him too. And Prigozhin, it seems like Prigozhin's in. So everybody kind of comes together on this on this uh, united front of we hate Strelkov. Prigozhin agrees, Shoigu agrees, the oligarchs, the gnomes, you know, and I don't mean the chuds, I mean the actual oligarchs in charge, the billionaires. Everybody hates Strelkov in, in power in Russia at the moment. He has no friends except for maybe some buddies in the FSB, but it seems like their protection has run dry. And there is a there's a high chance if Russia does go for this really cucked peace deal type agreement, which I hope, you know, for the for the sake of everyone, including the Orthodox Christians who are going to be persecuted even heavier as the degeneracy continues in Ukraine, if this peace deal goes ahead, Stilkov could be handed over. I feel like that's a potential bad crisis. Or it could just be a crackdown on the Patriots. Again, you mentioned Pavel Gubarov receiving a fine, being detained, essentially. It's kind of minor and not really a big deal. Again, notice the proximity of the Muslim protest happening in Moscow. Again, unsanctioned, similar to Pavel Gubarov's public public unsanctioned meeting outside of the courts, right? Which, or he needs to be detained and set a fine. But, but the Muslims who are protesting all over the outskirts of Moscow are not receiving any fines at all. And they're all of their meetings and yelling Allah Akbar outside. That's all completely unsanctioned, unqualified, etc. Just causing a ruckus. And let's just keep in mind, uh, Colonel Kvachkov as well, um, going to court this Friday, actually, the 21st of July. You know, completely, um, essentially unwarranted. Again, for the similar thing to, to Strelkov, but... He simply received a fine for apparently misinforming, again, the Russian public about the special military operation because he said something in an interview regarding the armed forces. So all of these patriots, they're getting harassed recently. It's very it's very uncanny. It's very displeasing, again, considering, as you said, Prigozhin's, um, you know, Prigozhin get, receiving the Pontius Pilate washing of hands treatment going on here. Because, well, Prigozhin was let off completely. He had hard drugs on him. He had 150 million American dollars worth of cash, which again was returned to him in Belarus. And so uh, I'm not sure exactly what kind of legal framework this falls into, but it's it's occurred. And let's just forget Pavel Gubarov. I'm just going to quote him and Sadgarad TV as well. They mentioned the fact that as Prigozhin and his column of Wagner units was heading towards Moscow, what we saw in Moscow, in, in the 12 hours, 100 billion rubles was withdrawn from Russian banks. In 12 hours, as Prigozhin was driving at Moscow, people started taking their money out of banks and running away. We saw the planes of the oligarchs. The tickets rose sky high because people were buying tickets to fly to Estonia, Latvia, etc., Petersburg. These oligarchs and rich, rich folks in Moscow were escaping. They had no trust in the city. They had no interest in, they're not patriots, they're not going to stand and defend their hometown, etc. And of course, who withdrew these $100 billion? I mean, 100 billion rubles, that is. It's about, amounts to about roughly $1 to $2 billion in less than 12 hours was withdrawn straight away from the banks. It just shows you how, I mean, do these rich, uh, yes, you can call it bourgeoisie. Does the Russian bourgeoisie actually trust the Russian state in defending themselves? And 
Like it, it shows kind of the sentiment in the major cities as Prigozhin was driving at Moscow, what the sentiment is. And it's not, it's not a patriotic one. It's not a positive one. And th this is very concerning. Yeah. I mean, we have to, you know, keep an eye on these guys because there's obviously, I mean, again, I think the best case scenario just in this whole situation of the arrest is that this is just some person within the Russian corrupt prosecutor's office that decided that it was time to bring the hammer down on the right wing people. But this comes at the same time as you remember said, the FSB is cracking down on a, I saw this just today. A bunch of different Muslim groups have been arrested. Um, there's, there's been a bit of a crackdown, I think across the board on, on some general, I guess, fringe activity within the Russian Federation. But before we move on to the other really big thing we want to talk about this episode, which is the recent statements from the Russian Orthodox church, you know, council itself. I want to, analyze Belarus and what's going on there. We've seen videos of Prigozhin, of Utkin, of, P of Prigozhin addressing Wagner troops in Belarus. We've seen these camps get bigger and bigger and bigger. Lukashenko himself said that if, if we were attacked, if we we're already prepared, we we're having Wagner, you know, help turn our country into the second most powerful military in the world. I think Prigozhin said that, you know, Lukashenko said that he legalized Wagner completely within the country, signed off on that. And of course, the Poles are obviously responding to this part of their huge military spending I talked about earlier is they're using that as a pre they're using the Wagner Belarus stuff as a pretext for that. And Lukashenko has made it very clear that he views Poland and Ukraine as potential aggressors, has no intention of being the first one to shoot or anything. But uh, it's very clear that there, there's something there's something in the works in Belarus with with Wagner and with all of that. Yeah, and also there is um, unconfirmed news that Wagner has actually begun releasing prisoners, um, you know, ending their terms early, sometimes even completely granting them clemency from a legal perspective. I'm not sure even sure how that works, but a lot of Wagner criminals were former criminals, convicts taken from prisons are actually being released. And I think that part of it is because Belarus actually wants Wagner as a professional, very well-trained army. Everything needs to be legal and signed. They do not want, uh, you know, a bunch of Russian convicts, murderers, etc. Well, which, you know, a lot of those people were in for murder and manslaughter, etc. Um, to be on Belarusian soil, essentially hanging out in the woods just with their homies. It, it just seems a little bit, uh, you know, it's bad optics. And in fact, it could even be bad, um, bad policy to have those people around. With all due respect, you know, they are, they did serve Russia despite having criminal sentences. So they did, in fact, take Bakhmut at the end of the day. So um, they served more than some some folks did. But yeah, Lukashenko, again, gaining a huge perk, openly claiming now that uh, Wagner will be used instantaneously to defend Belarus, Belarus if its borders are threatened by any country. So again, it's almost this powerful statement by Lukashenko that yes, him and Prigozhin have found this, you know, cemented relationship. And Prigozhin is like, he's not just an outcast. He's not just a reject. He's actually one one of the new ministers of defense. In fact, he's almost like a shadow minister of defense in Belarus, which is pretty cool. It's almost like you have an official one and then you have this uh, uh, this guy in the background like who runs things and who actually has the elites behind him. And it's it's, it's quite a nice cardinal position, position for Prigozhin, maybe one in which he didn't have in the Russian Federation because the Russian Federation much larger, a lot more pockets, a lot more um, uh, big influential uh, power players over there. But yeah, very uh, very positive development for Belarus, I think. In general, I want to say, bring it all back together. You know, we, we, Lukashenko was considered the hero, the winner at the end of the coup. I'm saying maybe maybe he can come in and just give Putin a call. we like, come on, man, just let the angry Patriots club, you know, come to Belarus, you know, let them, uh, 
you know, we won't we won't even mix them with Wagner. We'll keep them separate, you know. But you know, we'll also let them do something with our. Who knows? You know, maybe maybe Lukashenko will really prove himself a hero. And I wanted to say as well, and you were you were saying as well, Lukashenko uh, Strelkov has never really said anything particularly critical of Lukashenko. He's even said some positive things about him. So, in many ways, I think he is. You know, he's not loved by every Russian nationalist, but he is gaining more and more respect. And I think. Yeah, again, for Stolkov to respect someone like that who isn't even, you know, a Christian is, is, is pretty pretty impressive. Yeah, I think Lukashenko has proven himself as one of the most, um, you know, actually dead set politicians of from the 90s who's actually stood his ground and actually unchanged. In fact, the economy of Belarus in a way is somewhat stagnant, but in probably the best way possible in terms of like, it doesn't, it doesn't have the crazy GDP growth you'd see from its neighbors, even some of the Baltic countries, and it doesn't even export as much grain as, like, uh, I think Latvia does. So, but almost doesn't export anything, but it does have a high internal, sort of a very protected, protected market there internally. And in fact, it does function very similar to a small Soviet Republic during the USSR. So it, it has remained in this sort of frozen time state. And that has protected it culturally as well as economically in some regards. It's not the richest country, but again, uh, Lukashenko has kept it uh, kept it down, which is why a lot of again a lot of Russian patriots actually respect him because he never Lukashenko never gave in to the crazy privatization and the various auctioneering uh, debauchery that occurred in Russia in the early nineties under the leadership of guess who Chubais, right? The the big the big Chubais who recently moved to I think he was given a actual scholarship and not a scholarship but he was given a membership as a Glasgow. University, which is a very well-known in the well-known university in the UK, well-known position as a lecturer there. And again, he lives in Turkey now, Israel, the UK. He travels around. He was released from Russia at the start of the SMO. But here's an interesting thing, right? Someone like Chubais, who literally sold, he's the one guy responsible in the early 90s for destroying the Soviet economy and essentially not, not just destroying it, but dismantling it, selling it to various oligarchs. He's responsible for working with Berezovsky and Abramovich and the early... Um, Kolomoisky, etc. He's really not Kolomoisky, sorry, Khodorkovsky. Kolomoisky is a little bit of a different creature, although from the same tribe. You know, Chubais was responsible personally. He was never persecuted. He was kept in the Russian government, working with Ross Nano and all these various corrupt organizations, essentially uh, not charged by anyone, and then let off to go overseas. Now he's in the UK. Imagine the, again, when we speak about secret information, right? Top secret knowledge, what would Prigozhin know? Chubais would literally know top secret Russian economic, infrastructural, government secrets from his time in the 90s. And for some reason, he was let go by the Russian state. Not, I'm, I'm not saying assassinated, but he was let go completely and just released into the wild. And no one's touching him, which is bizarre. So you, when people say, you know, let's, let's, we, we need to, you know, we've got to put our foot down and just take out these angry patriots and all the people who object to Putin's reign. Well, Someone like Chubais is a literal enemy of the Russian people. Even Russian liberals think Chubais is an enemy because of the way he privatized certain industries in Russia in the early 90s. It's just an absolute disaster, right? And he is allowed to just run away, and now he's giving lectures about economics and how Russian privatization was a good thing in Glasgow University overseas and just embarrassing the entire country. It's it's incomparable to someone like Strelkov, but he's allowed to run away. So there's a bit of a hypocrisy double standard. Maybe it's because Chubais belongs to a certain tribe, but who knows? Billions of dollars tend to help you on things like that. But, you know, we're praying for Strelkov. You know, we hope that everything goes well. We hope he can get out of jail before September 18th. We know there's a political legal effort from his compatriots at the Club of Angry Patriots to help get him out. So we're, we're keeping that in our prayers and we're watching Belarus closely as... 
you know, if let's say it's not worst case scenario and there's no gay peace talks, you know, coming to the fore, I think Belarus could come into play if something more interesting is happening. But with all of that, I really want to talk about the church situation. Of course, we know the persecution has been ramping up. Metropolitan Paul is imprisoned. And, you know, I'm not even going to bring this up, but Strelkov, he's criticized Metropolitan Paul in the past. But I think, I think ironically, that, that beef may be getting squashed with some of these recent statements of the Russian Orthodox Church, because this is, I think, a big, going to be a big development in the world of, you know, the ongoing schism between Constantinople and Moscow, as this is the first kind of synodal statement and release from a council that fully kind of is entirely about implicating and calling out another patriarchate. So Dimitri, do you want to kind of tell, let the people know what was explicitly addressed in this kind of groundbreaking session? Yeah, very interesting. But the Russian Orthodox Church held a hierarchical council, essentially in Russian it's called the Archireski Sabor, which includes only the hierarchs. Notice it's hierarchical council. I don't even think abbots and prominent monks get to participate, let alone priests and deacons, which um, makes it somewhat restrictive. And it is very much a rule of the bishops, and they make a certain decision. Usually nothing really groundbreaking. Uh, one of the main criticisms of the Russian Church was that they have stopped actually coming together in local councils. The last local council actually elected Patriarch Kirill, I believe, in 2008 or nine, which was the last time. And actually, a lot of laity participated in the council, a lot of priests, even nuns. So women participated in a quite women laity, as well as a lot of prominent nuns from around Russia, which was a really big deal. Um, and somewhat uh, modernistic, you can say, but almost in a very positive 21st century way. So uh, very interesting development. But the R Russian church has had, held hierarchical councils every three to four years. And this one, uh, I think this council was actually overdue. It was due to occur last year, but because of the SMO, they couldn't hold it because they couldn't invite the Ukrainian bishops over. Ukraine, of course, has 40 to 45 various Orthodox dioceses belonging to the Russian church which need to participate in this council for it to have some sort of um, synodal legitimacy. But they again, they couldn't be invited last year because of the SMO, and this year it seems like the council was held anyway. At this council, of course, Russia has over 400 bishops, so I think they were participating, there was at least 200-plus bishops there. It was a huge hall, right, filled in with like just hierarchs everywhere, metropolitans, archbishops. But what was discussed, I think the three most, the biggest points, besides small administrative changes and comments, was that the Russian church... Uh, again, condemns the actions of the ecumenical patriarchate, their promotion of schism, and a lot of the things we were talking about, not just me and Conrad, but people like Jay Dyer, people like David Erhan, critiquing some of these ecclesiological and almost, you could say, theological, but mostly ecclesiological changes that the EP has developed over the last 100 years in terms of putting itself up there as this new papacy of the East. That was openly criticized by a document the Russian Orthodox Church released uh, in this past week, which was a, a great, great development because officially this document is very, very well drafted, well phrased, easy to understand. I think an English translation will soon be released. At the moment, only a Russian one is available, I believe. But it does speak very deeply, not just about the particular papacy issues of the ecumenical patriarch. You know, we're speaking about Patriarch Bartholomew and even some of his predecessors, what they kind of set in motion, but also they speak about Canon 28 of Chalcedon, this idea that all the lands and dioceses and various um, overseas uh, regions such as Korea, Japan, they all belong to these, um, they're all barbaric lands and they all kind of submit to the EP's top-down control, right, which is part of why Canada, Australia, South uh, South Korea, they all have uh, different seas of the EP, you know, what we call the Greek overseas archbishops, you know, the, the archbishopric system, 
which is which is in place at the moment but it's all very very interesting the russian church really breaks that down of course the other thing is the russian church i guess targets is the unions and catholicism it does mention ecumenism how it's unacceptable very slightly but mainly targets the fact that the catholic church is encroaching in western ukraine and in a way it seems almost preventative because we haven't really seen the catholic church actively promote some sort of proselytization against orthodoxy but the russian church almost like puts foot foot down and says no the snake will not you know go past this point we are still openly uh, theologically against the roman catholics we are not looking to have any sort of union and notice it's a very strong anti-union position right which is great because that's ex- that's the opposite of what people were hoping for. You know, they were saying, you know, the liberals were hoping for when they were saying, "Well, look, the World Council of Churches, Patriarch Bartholomew meets with the Pope, they're kissing hands, etc." The Russian Church has stamped it out completely on a massive level. Hundreds of bishops have agreed and signed these documents. This is amazing. And of course, I think the third thing, which is very, which is the key takeaway, is the Ukrainian persecution of the Church has been actively called out. The Ukrainian Church is now officially. Officially, the Russian Church has confirmed that the Russian Church in Ukraine or the Ukrainian Orthodox Church under the Moscow Patriarchate is under persecution by the state. So they've officially confirmed that on at a synodal level that there is an active persecution. It's not just administrative lawsuits. It's not targeted harassment. It's not some sort of local anecdotal discrimination. No, the state of Ukraine is actively persecuting Christianity, and we should all pray for the Ukrainian Orthodox community. And also the Russian church confirmed its unity with Ukraine and Metropolitan Onufri and the other bishops, the 40 plus bishops in, in Ukraine itself, and all the laity, the millions of laymen. So they're still they're still saying that all, these, all this laity still belongs to the mother Russian church because historically, culturally, and even ecclesiologically, they still do. Although this was thrown into a bit of a flux because certain bishops did claim that, well, Ukraine should be separate from Russia, but the Russian church said, no, well, you can say whatever you want to say, but technically you guys are still with us. And I think that was, uh, it's good that that particular statement was made at a, at, a, at a high official level to stamp out any sort of doubt. And, you know, it, it, it will reinforce the, mora- uh, the morale and the, um, the morale of the Ukrainian people currently under occupation and those, of course, targeted by the per- uh, by the um, persecutors of the Ukrainian state. Yeah, and I just want to read some of the exact quote just to get, to show people how dramatic some of this language is. This is a translation of, of one of the six articles from the section about the persecution in Ukraine and the kind of connection with the state and all of that. And it says, today on Ukrainian soil, the state power has shown itself to be the direct heir of the Bolsheviks, theomachists, and and raises persecution against the Orthodox Church. Faithful children of the Church are expelled from churches. Hierarchs, clergymen, and laity are subjected to unjust arrests and dishonorable trials. Shrines are desecrated and plundered. Particularly bitter is the news that attempts are being made to force the clergy and laity of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church to renounce God's truth and push them into schism. The participants in the Conference of Bishops call for intense prayer for Orthodox brothers and sisters in Ukraine, for those who, in spite of threats, slander, and persecution, strive to preserve church unity, and especially for those who show a truly confessional feat, courageously raising their voices in defense of this unity. Many years to Metropolitan Pavel of Vishgorod in Chernobyl, who is now in prison, and to all hierarchs, confessors who are undergoing criminal prosecution for their faith in the church. So, I mean, this is, they're not really holding back. And the, later on, it said, it is impossible not to mention that the so-called Greek Catholics, Uniates, take an active part in inciting and supporting the persecutions of the Orthodox people of Ukraine. And remember, just last episode, with Jim, we talked about the future 2025 reunion. If you go to the World War Now YouTube channel, there's a clip, 12 minutes of that, just that section with kind of some some graphics and things added. So be sure to check that out if you want to really dive into this topic. But the schism aspect is so important 
in tying in with that union in 2025. And I think, look, we know it's a tragedy that's going on, but it's really so crucial that these statements were released from the Russian Orthodox Church because we, it wasn't really that realistic of a fear for us, but we, we know it's true. We know the like the Havana document and meetings and some of these things. Russia isn't perfect on its history with ecumenism with the Pope. And I'll just say it, the reason Strelkov criticized Metropolitan Paul in the past is because he has made extremely pro-Roman Catholic statements. And however, the Russian Orthodox Church clearly has both recognized the Ukrainian Orthodox Church and their hierarchs as completely canonical and valid and in communion with them still, and condemned the Ukrainian Greek Catholics who have been concelebrating with these schismatics. They've been condemned as well. So if some kind of weird union is to occur, Russia will view it as completely antithetical, and I think it will only serve to push any of those remaining ecumenist figures within the Russian church, they'll, they'll kind of realize that, well, this is not what the Holy Spirit wants. And look, that's how things get worked out in the church. I'm not saying it's pretty, but these are the kind of things that kind of sanctify synods, sanctify these hierarchy that, you know, people wonder, people read these words from Elder Ephraim and St. Joseph about how new, and St. Porphyrius about how there will be new captains of the ship and everything. It's these sort of events that will, that are able to kind of enlighten hierarchs towards what's really kind of going on and why there's, you know, why something like a union with Rome in that regard is, is objectively not, not the path that the church needs to take right now. And I think the fact that Sviatoslav Sevchuk, and this was talked about by Jim as well, is such a close friend. He's the head of the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church, the Uniates, Sviatoslav Sevchuk is, and he's a very close friend of Pope Francis from Argentina, and that it's just very obvious that this plan is has been in the works for a while, and that the war and all of that is going to be used to to facilitate it. You know, we've talked about the Abrahamic Faith Center in Abu Dhabi and all the bizarre Abrahamic ecumenism going on, and it's I am grateful to see that it appears that the Russian Orthodox Church, and then by by extension, the majority of patriarchates in world orthodoxy will not be falling for this this ecumenist one world religion stuff. I think an, a very interesting take, essentially in the document regarding the ecumenical patriarchate, the Russian church mentions the autocephalous church structure in 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 world orthodoxy. Essentially, how the orthodox world functions is is this. Uh, you know, there there is of course um, the honourable one from amongst the many, the the ecumenical patriarch patriarchate, but everybody else is granted independence, and there is the synodality. There is no. There is no papacy. The, the fact that a, a council actually cemented that opinion may sound like a bit redundant, but in fact, people in the modern world do need these things restated, especially, well, Russian people, but also folks online who, you know, these religious debates can, can continue now and then, and they say, well, the church isn't capable of making collective decisions anymore because, you know, it's, um, it's a bit outdated and the Orthodox Church is not united. No, the Russian church is the largest is the most populous, has the most bishops, and it's clearly making very modern, useful, uh, you know, almost uh, very applicable collective statements here. And of course, this, these documents could be used as well by the Ukrainian Orthodox Christians in order to protect themselves against um, against opinions thrown into the church by, you know, various uh, people who want to promote schism and essentially promote deceit in the church because they can say, well, bishops have their independent opinions. You know, like you mentioned, Metropolitan Paul maybe could have said something cringe or mistaken in the past, but everybody makes mistakes. It's these synods which cement truth and essentially underline truth that, that they say, look, this is the bottom line. The, the Holy Spirit works through these collective councils and 
this one clearly speaks speaks to that and in fact it doesn't go outside any sort of uh, ridiculous boundaries it's very very well controlled uh statements by these russian priests and bishops here and uh, i suppose it would um it, it also supports the fact that well look throughout the special military operation the russian church explicitly prays for peace it prays for for god to provide a peaceful solution whatever that may you know that may not necessarily come through a peace treaty it may come from the capitulation of one of the warring sides right because peace doesn't necessarily need to come from a from an armistice or a peace treaty it could come from one of the sides simply saying look white flag we surrender which we were saying this from the beginning ukraine i mean this is a bloody ritual of sorts you know to, they're fighting to the last ukrainian literally and you know and metaphorically speaking here so it's it's just a matter of ukraine actually surrendering that would be the most orthodox christian solution and the only critique we had of certain ukrainian hierarchs is like well look it's the it's not a call to arms against the ukrainian state which is required but it's a call to put down your arms actually not to fight for this the for this corrupt degenerate state which is trying to legalize homosexuality which is trying to legalize uh, same-sex marriage uh, drug drug consumption etc all this bizarre stuff which Zelensky is pushing clearly the high rather the Verkhovne rather is pushing this too so exactly why are we praying for this corrupt country and the call from the Ukrainian bishops and the clergymen and I'm not here to educate the bishops but this is just a I suppose a suggestion of sorts as someone who's been in the church for a very very long time would be to look perhaps a call to actually put down your arms and telling your telling your actual spiritual children not to fight against the russians that would be the most christian position here you know a position of peace not fighting against the russians would sound like a good idea you don't have to necessarily turn against Zelensky and string him up outside or anything absurd like that that would be a call to violence no definitely not that but a, a call to actually put down your arms and not participate in this in defending this uh, corrupt corrupt project would be a good start i think and the russian church it does call for peace but again it's not stated exactly how that peace can be reached because again we don't know it is a mystery and it's up to god exactly how this will come about and again i think the ep we know has totally signed off on the on the on the seizures of the property so in at this point i think it's safe to say that, that anything short of a like anything short of these monasteries and parishes getting behind the front line of the Russian forces there it's open season on their um you know on their buildings and on their property so i want everyone to keep all of that in your prayers because it's a very scary situation for a lot of christians out there but unless you have anything else Dmitri, you want to say on the council it was a big deal i we're going to link the document below i encourage everyone to you know read through it translate it as much as you can but i want to talk about a few other things going on in russian foreign policy explicitly the BRICS situation yeah, I think only that the council, this council will be assessed and commented on for, I think, many weeks going ahead, not just by us, but it will be harkened back on. These councils occur very rarely. It's rare that you can get hundreds of bishops in one place at once in a single place. So, again, this is kind of the a new foundation point. You know, we had sermons from Patriarch Kirill and sort of collective statements, like on a minor level from bishops. And also you mentioned new captains of the ship, Conrad. I think a new, a very potential... You know, a new captain of the ship would be <clears throat> Bishop uh, Saba of Zelenograd, which Zelenograd is just north, north. I believe it's northwest of Moscow. It's just a really small town, but essentially he is one of the right-hand bishops of Patriarch Kirill. He's quite young, I think late 30s, maybe early 40s, and he's very outspoken about not just the idea of Third Rome and actually rebuilding Russia as an Orthodox society, a future Orthodox empire, but he is... He's very much enthralled in that particular project, and he's extremely conservative. The cool thing about Bishop Sava, just real quick, is that 
he essentially was part of the white Russian immigration from the diaspora. He was Rokor, and when he was, I believe, uh, very young, either 10 or 15, his parents moved back to Moscow. And in fact, so he actually comes from France originally, and he's uh, he's not a, he was never born in Russia, but in fact, he's an, I guess he's a, he migrated back home, essentially, to the home of his ancestors. So Bishop Savoy, of course, is one of those future captains, a potential future patriarch, you know, God willing. Uh, and you know he's really leading the Russian church in a great way. So, besides that, I think it's I think it's important we touch upon some of these other huge events coming up, like the Brick Summit. I think that's that'll probably shake things up even a bit more than the Vilnius Summit that just occurred. In uh, yeah, so there's definitely a lot to discuss. Going to be watching it closely. I just wanted to say as well for again, I'm not just trying to be polemical against Catholics, but for anyone who would make the silly argument that the Orthodox Church is disunited, you need the Pope. You need the magisterium. You need the infallible magisterium from from an earthly, you know, vessel or whatever. I would just encourage you to find four hundred Catholic bishops that agree on anything, even fifty percent of their beliefs, as much as the Russian bishops that would gather at a that that all the Russian bishops would would gather together to to uh, in a council what the opinions would be. I just encourage. I think recognizing that I don't think ten bishops in the Catholic Church, unless they're on the Francis left wing end of the spectrum, agree on more than maybe sixty percent of their of their perspectives, which is ta- is sad. It's a sad state. The Catholic Church is, and again, Jim had talked about this that the Catholics are kind of renewing this. Syn- the liberals are bringing back synodality and rejecting, you know, papal supremacy, whereas the Orthodox are rejecting the the EP specifically is rejecting synodality and embracing neo papalism. It's this: the Pope and the EP are moving together in this neo synthesis that I'm very grateful to see uh, the Russian Orthodox Church, and then by extension, all of those I think who haven't. Recognize the schismatics, you know, Antioch, Georgia, Bulgaria, Serbia, Jerusalem, the Czech lands, Poland, you know, all these places are, by extension, I think, can be considered part of the true synodal tradition and not this kind of innovative ecclesiology. But with all that being said, the BRICS summit is coming up, and the big news is that it will not be Putin appearing in South Africa. It will be Foreign Minister Lavrov, who will be on the ground, Putin will be appearing by video conference, which as far as I could tell, I don't think Putin wanted. I think Putin wanted to go and he wanted South Africa to leave the ICC. I think that's what I think Putin wanted, but that doesn't seem to be what they were doing. The South Africans didn't leave the ICC, but the BRICS summit regardless is going to be big. We've heard the talk of the gold-backed currency that seems you know, to not necessarily be number one agenda on the menu, but obviously I think the main thing is just going to be who's going to be the next people in. You know, Are we going to let in you know, Iran, maybe Saudi Arabia, Mexico, some of these countries that have opined about the organization? So it's, it's definitely very interesting, and it all comes amidst Russia, China doing these huge drills you know, in their territorial waters near Japan in response to these kind of Japan, U.S., Korean drills that have been going on both in Taiwan and in the north of Japan. So it's pretty obvious that Russia and China are in it for the long haul as far as Taiwan and Russia has pledged, you know, whatever naval forces it has out east towards, you know, they're going to be, they're closely working with China and they're going to be, have they're going to have their watches synced up, I guess you could say. Yeah, I think an interesting discussion, uh, even if they do discuss the gold standard, but I think something like a digital yuan, digital ruble, digital rupee, like a CBDC-based, you know, crypto-based type currency would be quite interesting. We have heard that sort of discussion by, um, if anyone, Glazyev, the former economic advisor to the president of Russia, actually had a presentation on Sadograd TV where he mentioned 
the future move towards uh, digital currencies as a way to curb corruption in the Russian Federation, because in fact you can trace these digital currencies and see exactly who's receiving bribes and you know if money is being misappropriated, etc. But very interesting sort of move away from this corrupt fiat currency US dollar-based system. Whatever moves world economy away from that is probably a good thing. I'm not sure if it's possible to do that through gold, where in fact, where most of the world gold is. I know some countries like Russia and China have been stocking up on gold, but whether or not India and the other BRICS members have kept up is another query. And naturally, there are, over, I believe, over 15 countries at this point have proposed themselves as potential members into BRICS. So the name BRICS may not be accurate uh, soon. Like, I mean, they, they may still call themselves BRICS, but in fact, the, the name may change to something else, or it may Maybe they'll keep it for the sake of aesthetics. The bricks does sound pretty cool. Like it does sound kind of second worldish, you know, almost like a hearkening back to just building things from scratch, you know, kind of handyman, blue collar type, you know, applicability, like real world. You're not really working with money. You're not really, you know, putting countries into debt like Greece or working with the IMF, the World Bank. It's kind of like we're building things, you know, uh, very, um, very biblical, very positive. So it does have a pretty cool, pretty cool name. But yeah, South Africa again, very interesting nation. The fact that they they're not removing removing themselves from the ICC, I don't think they would ever do that for Putin necessarily, just for him. But it's we should consider the fact that you know they had all those controversies with the white farmers who Russia did invite, recall a few years ago into Russia. They said, well, look, you guys are being discriminated against, and the government in South Africa is very much on the whole Antifa woke BLM side. So. Um, they have their own, of course, movements against the various white farmers and the and the descendants of the Boers, etc. So there is this a bit trend that look, Russia is emerging as this new sort of savior, this particular country which is granting all these white people citizenship, and you know it does get into racial polemics and racial policies here, and that's probably that's probably a good reason as to why South Africa there may be tensions between you know the future Russia and some of these uh, countries in Africa which have abused their local white populations to to a great extent. That's also something to consider, but the BRICS summit is will be the biggest meeting, I think, in recent history. And in fact, you mentioned, Conrad, the BRICS summit, like, in terms of timeline, it does, it does occur right before that September push. So in fact, we could see the BRICS, the summit actually occur, and the Russia, Russia, as well as China, India, some of these major players could gauge what the opinion of these various international, uh, uh, alliances are before say escalating the smo to a certain extent because once the smo is escalated once a new offensive has been begun by russia this will affect world markets so in fact russia may enter into this particular meeting with the vision of hey um are you guys ready we're about to we're about to go all in here you know make sure make sure that everything is stable it could be like a you know, preparatory sort of meeting before before the uh, third and the fourth quarter of the year yeah and i think with BRICS. It's important. You just you mentioned the white South Africans, and I, I hope that Russia kind of keeps that support up because the danger with something like BRICS is that it kind of reverts. Even like the combination of this and the CBDC stuff that just turns into this kind of uh, secondary globalist third worldism, where we you know all just we all talk about the grievances we have with the West and how brown people are oppressed, and then we also just do like, you know, WEF-style economic uh, control, you know, neoliberal nonsense, which I don't think that's the necessary outcome of all of this, especially as I think we lurch towards World War III. That's going to take more and more priority over some of the some of the sillier nonsense. And But that being said, I think Russia is going to have to be the key leader in that. China, I don't think, is even going to be doing it as... The, China would have to listen, but I think China is almost more racist than Russians in some ways at this point. But but, but I think... Uh, I mean, look, Russia has 135 million white people in it. I mean, that's within a few decades 
is that's going to probably it's going to be like the white it's going to be like the main white country because America is declining much faster in that regard. So I think Russia can easily put its foot down and look as much as some of the government and some of the media might signal towards its like South American, you know, former communist allies about some of this racial nonsense. There's just as much other stuff coming out as well. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, there's Russians that the Russian media more and more is calling out the kind of far left degeneracy coming out of the West. And even then, I mean, I think we all remember like early on there were Wagner and I think even uh, Donetsk militia troops, you know, caught on camera talking about how their perspective on the war in Russia fighting against Ukrainians that they were fighting for, you know, the white race, as it were. It wasn't just Ukrainians and Azov people saying stuff like that. So I don't think that, I, I think in the long term, Russia is not going to fall for the third worldism meme. And I think, especially I think after Putin, there's a good chance that the person in power is going to be even less obsessed with the weird Muslim appeasement. So I'm, I'm not super blackpilled on that from a Russian civilizational perspective. Yeah, I think regardless of the various statements, the um, Quran handling, the, you know, et cetera, so, you know, all, all the claims of diversity is our strength. It's all essentially, I, I agree with the general critique that yes, it is basically just soft PR, very cheap diplomacy. And essentially what say people have been doing for decades now, at least those politicians who, you know, they're, they're both secular and religious at the same time. It's simply very part and parcel, uh, you know, kind of sticking to the status quo. And, and again, very interesting that um, France, in fact, may also be attending this BRICS summit. I'm not sure if it's confirmed yet, but if France does attend, or at least Macron has, you know, request that he does attend, it does show that, you know, even Western nations who seek perhaps some sort of, they want a piece of that pie, they want a piece of that multipolar pie. And France, of course, is uh, is a great, of great potential. And France, of course, is not just, it just does, doesn't just have that independence of nuclear technology as well as military capacity and capability in the Navy, but it does have that also the same issue of mass migration and you know how to essentially deal with its former colonies having access to to the mainland french french population and the demographic crisis which will uh, not just uh, carry over into the near future but also could continue into perpetuity because well what do you do with the local population that has migrated over from africa and the middle east well they're french now so they have french citizenship passports their children are born in France. You cannot simply deport them. This is something that France will need to build domestically, but also, you know, it'll probably bring France a lot closer to that third world, if you know what I mean. Essentially, especially if France sends some of its diplomats who have a bit, um, uh, a bit more of that uh, brownness, a bit more of that, you know, how should I say it? Well, France is a bit more accepting. You can accept France a, lot, a bit, a bit more easier than say. Uh, a, a white, a white sort of Wagner future president uh, Utkin, for example. You know, I'm yeah. not, I'm not predicting anything, but uh, Colonel Dmitry Utkin is a real man. He's a real Giga Chad character. He may or may not have two SS tattoos on his trapezius muscle from you know back in the day. We all do things you know as edgy teenagers, but Dmitry Utkin is a real colonel. He is the top. He's a top G of Wagner, and it's been confirmed by people like Gubarov who have said that they have mutual friends in the military. He's a real GRU, Jesse Ventura type, Navy SEAL, Arnold Schwarzenegger type. He's a real deal, Colonel. In the, so he, and he's leading Wagner right now. So I'm not sure what kind of aspirations he would have, but he's, he's definitely someone who's easy to support. Nevertheless, interesting to see how uh, Russian relations with these international countries will, will develop further into the future. We'll probably speak a lot more on BRICS in the coming weeks. Well, I think this is the last I'll say on that is that I think we're all grateful that Russia never actually got into the uh, sub-Saharan African colonization game. You know, there was obviously all the Soviet stuff, but that was different. We're not going to see the 
the post-colonial migration into Russia, which is going to be a good thing. But the last thing I want to say, we're going to wrap it up here, is I have to talk about what's going on with Trump in the U.S. Trump, supposedly, he's going to be indicted and possibly arrested due to the... Uh, from the J6 committee, he's, I don't know what they're going to charge him with exactly. There's rumors that he's going to be charged with, you know, incitement, conspiracy. They've obviously got him on the two other indictments with the uh, supposed documents, the classified documents, and then, of course, the Stormy Daniel nonsense in Manhattan. But uh, he released that whole letter about how he thinks he, they sent him a letter which usually precedes an indictment. And, I mean, this is big. I mean, the the coup against the American people continues Whatever you think about Trump, you know, we've criticized some aspects of his presidency, his starting to arm Ukraine, but it's just indisputable that any, like, there's no, all this DeSantis stuff, the Republican primary, if you're going to care about electoral politics in America at all, Trump is the only game in town. He's the only thing worth supporting. It's the only, he's the only thing that, he's the only one uniting the dissidents in any kind of tangible way. I mean, we have some characters, you know, some things are developing behind the scenes. I think a lot of people are waking up to even more you could say red-pilled things that what Trump even has to lay down, but Trump right now is the, he's, you could say, kind of the avatar of the of the American ethnos, you know, the the rural patriot, the, ru- the rural Anglo-American, you know, the rural Celt, you know, has been disenfranchised by, by you know, the a coalition of elites and their, and their, in the third world imports. But I think Trump, he's, he's still fighting. And again, their goal is obviously to have him in a jail cell or have him, look, I mean, as Jim said, they somehow find a way to get him off the ballot in Pennsylvania, he can't win. And the question is, is that going to be enough to really defeat him? Or is he going to, you know, I guess, cross the Rubicon, for lack of a better word? You know, we know it didn't happen on January 6th, but, you know, January 6th is in the past. Uh, and I think for, for a penultimate sort of view of the looming 2024 election, which will probably shake up the world in the US and these recent indictments, I think we should probably have, and we may even have, uh, it's almost confirmed, the um, Greek Orthodox attorney in the US and former Trump electoral lawyer, uh, Pericles Abbasi himself from Twitter, he may actually make an appearance uh, with myself and Conrad on one of the Acre Hour special episodes. So definitely subscribe because that episode will definitely will be interviewing him and having his opinion as an internal attorney working for the Trump team, exactly what he sees for Trump in 2023, 2024, and you know what the potential is of his opponents, DeSantis, again, thoughts on Biden, maybe the legal side as well as just the cultural side. Like what what's the Greek opinion on the matter as well as, you know, exactly can Trump actually stall these suits long enough Right, these these particular cases and charges against them in order to win the election in 2024. Big plans again to discuss this election next year. Just as with the Turkish election, it was a big deal moving into it. But of course, nothing trumps, no pun intended, the American election. It, it of course changes. It affects world markets. It is probably one of the most contentious things. It shapes the world essentially. It's not just a metaphor. And every every world elite essentially somehow tugs and pulls at the potential to influence it in some way. You know, there are claims that Russia influenced it, but we know other countries in the Middle East, certain very small countries really have their fingers in the pie and exactly who, and we see the influence, it's, it's palpable somewhat, like Roe v. Wade is overturned, uh, the, Russian, you know, the Russian SMO begins during the Obama period. Of course, Crimea is taken by Russia. It has geopolitical implications. Trump drops a Moab in Afghanistan. Like, Big things, right? Big things. Um, the American political sphere, no matter how much control there is over the, you know, the, the swamp and the military industrial complex, the presidential election with characters like Trump will always bring a lot, bring a lot of interest. And we, in fact, have, have a heavy interest in that. And I think all Orthodox people should 
uh, you know, view it, of course, with skepticism, but there should be some sort of discernment there, especially when you go up to the voting booth. I mean, there's just no denying how affected Orthodox countries are by U.S. policy more than any other, I think, I mean, uh, even more these days, I think, than Muslims. I'm sorry. I just, I'm just going to say it. Sorry if any Muslims get offended by that, but just the level of which with Russians, with Georgians, with Serbs, with you know, the, the targeting with psychological Syrians, the targeting of both psychological and just hard warfare by the U.S. and, of course, the main U.S. proxy. Well, the rain. Well, depending on whose proxy perspective you're looking at, of course, Israel. Israel really doesn't help any of these countries either. But it's a, uh, you know, it's 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 important. It's, again, it's not to say that your vote will affect U.S. foreign policy or anything like that. It's just that, again, as we say, if any in many ways, the election cycle is more important more important than the results of the election itself, right? Like as long Trump being in the game brings this revolutionary energy and this bully pulpit where we can look i know so many people behind the scenes on the trump team that get it you know even if you something trump say you might not like the people that get it are there the desantis stuff no that's that's nonsense so you know i'm, I'm talking to people behind the scenes like you say well, we're talking to perry like we've got it's it's again we're not well yeah we're on the we're on the trump train here you know it's time to it's time to stop the stop the nonsense and you know again we have our criticisms we're going to hold his feet to the fire but it's it's now or never, you know, and if you're going to care about American politics at all, that's that's what's going to go down. But unless you have anything else you want to leave us with, Dimitri, um, I'm ready to do the plugs. You can do them too. You know, it's uh, I'm done. Only that the Russian presidential election will also take place next year, but I think that'll be um, of lesser result. I believe President Putin hasn't openly stated that he'll run for another six years, which I mean, his term was reset in 2020. And his last, last election occurred in 2018, remember, and he ran against Grudinian, who received 11% of the vote from the Communist Party. Zuganov didn't personally run, I believe he was too old and probably too senile, as he still loves Lenin, etc., etc. But very interesting, the 2024 Russian election as well. And, you know, hopefully Putin's health holds up, uh, you know, for the sake of Russia and stability and things. But um, it will be very interesting to see putin running again again russian politics is very different it's not the election is not as exciting but we'll still be covering that as well um nevertheless uh you know it's been a great episode a lot to discuss a lot a lot, a lot of things unsaid but again we'll be filling you guys in for the special edition episodes we have a lot of really fun subjects planned not just the esoteric and folklorish ones that and not just ones which are based in very deep dark conspiracy which we'll be going into but there's a lot of really fun fun great content out there for you guys um which we'll be releasing of course so stay tuned subscribe to substack if you guys want to support us that's probably the main way and of course um you know your support is always appreciated you know join the club join the world one our big family and you know uh we appreciate all the feedback you guys have for us yeah, that's right. Worldwarnow.substack.com. That's where you'll find everything. Support us. Listen to every episode of Ether Hour. Read every article. Obviously, subscribe on YouTube, World War Now. We post clips, you know, with some editing to it. So, you know, you get those condensed ideas from these long streams. And again, let us know how excited you are about the live streams. We have them coming. We have super chats enabled. So prepare for that. Get your wallets ready for us to answer some questions live. But yeah, World War Now underscore on Twitter. We're always very active on there. World War Now Telly on Telegram. I'm on Twitter, Gnome Rad. Dimitri's on Twitter, O Canonist. Yeah, like I said, World War Now at Subset.com. That's our home base. And with all of that, uh, we'll see you next time. God bless. Mm-hmm.